For we did not follow the cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's say it together. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. We continue in our series in, in the second letter of Peter. And last week we talked about this idea and the imperative to grow in Christ, to continue to grow. And next week, we'll be talking about false teaching. Uh, Peter will be addressing some specific issues that he sees in the church of his day, and then we will see still uh, issues in the, in the life of the church of our day as well. <clears throat> but between that, Peter is establishing the authority of his teaching. So in other words, if you're going to say somebody else is wrong, you kind of have to make a case why you are right. And so that's what Peter is doing here in our text. He is teaching what is true, and he wants to tell us that there's good reason to trust him and to trust in the Bible in general. So this is the foundational idea here laid out for us of the authority of God's Word, authority of Scripture. So today, this morning, we'll look at something old, something new, someone real, and something for all of us to do. Is it too clever? I wasn't sure. I was, when I, I came, I was like, this may be a, a bit too clever. But we do have a wedding coming up in June, so I'm, I'm thinking along, along those lines. Something old, the Old Testament, the prophetic witness, something new, the New Testament, which is the apostolic witness. Some, someone real, which is a person about whom all this, uh, all this testifies, namely Jesus. And then finally, something for all of us to do, which will deal with several points of application. Okay, so that's my plan. So let's start in verses 20 and 21. We'll start at the end. Verses 20 and 21. Peter says, knowing this first of all, now this is important, he says this is something really important, of first importance, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so right here, Peter gives us the reason why his readers and why we today should pay attention to the Bible. Now, of course, Peter is talking about the Old Testament specifically. This is the Scripture of his day. This is what everybody had written was the Old Testament. And 
all of this, of course, also applies to the Bible in general. So what does Peter say about the Old Testament and the authority of Scripture in general? Well, first, negatively, he says that no true prophecy recorded in Scripture has a purely human origin. No prophecy recorded in Scripture has a purely human origin. Peter says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Now, if you read the Bible and you find these stories of how various people were called into the prophetic ministry, you will find that none of them wanted it. None of them wanted to do what God was asking them to do. So, for example, Moses, when he was called by God to speak on his behalf, he said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then he had several more excuses after that. When Jeremiah was called, he said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Isaiah responded to the vision of the Lord by saying, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. None of the Old Testament prophets wanted to be prophets. But they were called by God to speak on God's behalf. They didn't choose it. And so it's always a bad sign when somebody introduces themselves to you as a prophet. Back when I was in Chicago and we were ministering among many church planters, that was the, at the height of the church planting boom in Chicago and many other cities. It was always a bad sign when you met somebody who was just thinking about planting a church, but their email address already says Pastor John or Pastor Dave or Pastor Bill. They're already there. They've already embraced that role. Well, the way it works in Scripture is that the authority doesn't come from us. We don't choose that. The Lord calls us. And the Lord calls us to all sorts of different roles, and some people are called to prophetic ministry. But it doesn't come from the will of man. Now, Peter also says that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, this verse could be a little confusing because some commentators would say, well, that has to do with interpreting prophecy, as in a person cannot interpret prophecy on their own. It has to be done with the church and in the church tradition. But I think in context, to me, it's pretty clear that it doesn't speak about the interpretation of Scripture or prophecy. It actually speaks to the origin of prophecy and Scripture, just like the rest of this passage does. What Peter is saying is that no prophecy is based on someone's interpretation or understanding of events. It doesn't come from the human mind. What Peter is saying is that prophecy doesn't originate in a human perception of reality, but in fact, it reflects the divine perception of reality. And so when a prophecy comes, it comes from God, it comes through people, but it comes from God, and it gives us the truthful understanding of what is happening. It gives us the truthful, the right interpretation of what is happening around us. Now, in the last several years, there has been an unusual number of so-called prophets making all sorts of predictions about certain political events, the fate of certain political figures, 
and based on the outcomes of their predictions. Now, I'm not saying every one of them was false, but the majority, the overwhelming majority, based on the outcomes of their predictions, were self-proclaimed and self-promoting prophets who presented their own interpretations of events and their own ideas about what should happen, but they presented it as God's revelation. There's nothing wrong with saying, I think this is what's going to happen. Or I think this person is going to win in the next election. Or I think this law is going to pass, or this law is going to fail, or this person is going to go to jail. There's nothing wrong in saying that on your own authority. Based on my data, my research, what I understand, that's fine to say that. But to say that God says that is a whole other matter. Prophecy comes from God, and if you say that God says it, you better make sure that God said it. And that you're not just fulfilling your own wishes, saying, well, I want it to be so. And of course, God never disagrees with me. So it must be so. And so you say it with full authority. But Peter says that these pronouncements, these people that take on God's authority without God's call, are no prophets at all. Because no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So don't listen to them. Listen to the real prophets in Scripture. Now, that's the negative. That that's not prophecy. That's not revelation. That's not the Bible. Now, what is it? How does the Bible work? Well, secondly and positively, Peter says that all true prophecy recorded in Scripture comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the Holy Spirit, from God Himself. Peter says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible writers spoke from God. They were recording God's message, God's words. Carried along is a nautical term referring to a ship carried along by the wind. As a ship's sail is filled by the wind, so a true prophet is filled by the Holy Spirit. As a ship is moved by the power of the wind, so a biblical writer is moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter is laying out the doctrine of the divine inspiration of Scripture. This isn't just a human book. This isn't just thoughts of men and women recorded for us, their aspirations, their predictions, their speculations. This is not what this book is. Now, another good passage to go to is 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out. It's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Bible is breathed out by God Himself. God is the author of the Bible. And of course, each biblical writer's personality and experience and skills are reflected in the writing. The message is from God and is given on His own authority. Now, what that means is that the Bible is true because God is true. It can be trusted because God can be trusted. 
It is without mistake or error because God does not lie. He's not a liar. He's not going to mislead you. He's not going to deceive you. That's the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. That's where the authority of Scripture comes from. So when you open the book, you're not just reading what Peter thinks. You're reading what Peter is saying based on what the Lord is saying through Peter. With all Peter's experiences, with all his personality traits, with all that he is as a human being, it is still God who's speaking through him. And that is why the message is to be trusted. Now, this is how the whole Bible is. But what Peter is doing here is he's reminding us of the Old Testament in particular because all the people in these churches have the Old Testament. And most of them already believe these things that he's saying. He's just reminding them, as he told us earlier in the passage, he's just reminding us of these truths. They're already established in the truth, but he wants to make sure that we don't forget that authority comes from God's Word. Okay, so he makes the case for the authority of the Old Testament as part of the foundation of the true teaching of the church. But there's another part of the foundation. There's also the New Testament. So let's look at something new. The Apostle Paul says in, in um, Ephesians 2, verse 20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church is built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. The apostles, the New Testament, prophets, the Old Testament. The prophetic word of the Old Testament and the apostolic witness of the New Testament both testify about Jesus Christ as the foundation for all true teaching. Now look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I had a college professor in Kiev that he was teaching literature, but he made a point to equate the Gospels of the New Testament with the ancient myths about Hercules and Thor any chance he got. I was a very young believer, still reading my Bible, still figuring stuff out, but even to a young believer, that argument was not persuasive. And the reason is, is because I had read a lot of the myths that he was talking about as a kid. And I was also reading the New Testament, and I saw the difference. And it is different. As you read it, you realize that there is a big difference in how that information is passed on to us. The New Testament writers are basing their records on eyewitness accounts. And they keep telling us that. They keep telling us over and over again that what they're saying is not a myth. It's not something that has been passed on to them through many, 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 many sources. But they're actually saying what they experienced. Apostle Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, says that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, the twelve apostles, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul says, though some have fallen asleep. Now, Paul is writing to actual people. People are getting these letters. And in those letters, Paul says, what I'm saying is, is based on eyewitness accounts. 
And here are the people that you can talk to. You can talk to Cephas, Peter. You can talk to the 12 apostles. You can talk to any of the 500 people that saw Jesus risen from the dead. And he's saying a lot of them are still alive. They're around. You go talk to them. And some of them have passed on. He says, if you don't believe me, if you don't think what I'm saying is true, go ask the people who were there. The Apostle John, another apostle, begins his first letter, 1 John, with these words. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. I mean, he, he, is, he is basing his whole letter, his whole teaching, all that he's going to say about Christ and Antichrist and, and loving each other and knowing that you belong to God, all the things that he's going to say in that letter. He's saying, I'm saying that because I know Jesus. We have seen him. We heard him speak. We have touched him. We were there. And what he's saying is true because they were there. And Peter 2, in our passage, says, You can trust my teaching about Jesus because we, meaning the apostles, that's the apostolic witness, and they're keeping each other accountable. They're not just one apostle. All of these people are speaking the same truths. He's saying all these apostles were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of Christ's majesty. He's saying we were there with Jesus. We saw what he did. We heard what he said. We knew him. Now, we live in a time when people's opinions are largely based on what the pundits say and not what the reporters say. It's a big difference. And I am just as guilty about it as anybody else. I mean, so much of what I think I realize is based on what somebody else said about something else. It's how somebody interpreted an event. It's how somebody said, well, this is the right opinion about it versus the report of the event itself. When we often look for someone to explain how a specific event fits into my worldview, rather than look at the event itself and see whether my worldview might need to be changed. Peter says he's not a pundit. He is not an expert that's going to discern what happened and interpret it and adjust it to a worldview. He's saying he's a reporter. He's on the scene. He's actually saying, this is what I saw. This is the information you need to base your life upon. He's telling us what he himself witnessed. Now, this is broadly applicable to all the apostles and all the events of the gospel history, but Peter specifically has one event in mind. So he's not just saying, I was there, I know everything he's saying. Okay, for example, for example... I was there. A couple other guys were with me. You can check with them. And we saw this thing happen. And this is what he says. When he received, when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, saying we were there. And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. The majestic glory is just a, a high view, uh, a high name for God. And this voice, this God's voice said, and they heard it, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him 
on the holy mountain. Now, Peter is describing the transfiguration of Jesus. And you can read more about it in several places, Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. But Peter was there at this event. He saw Jesus transfigured. Jesus became glorious. He became brilliant. Something very unusual happened, and, and Elijah was there, and, and Moses was there. Something was happening, miraculous, supernatural. But Peter says, we were there. And so we saw his glory, and we heard the voice affirming this majesty that's given to Jesus. And the reason why Peter is citing this specific event as an example is because he wants to support his teaching, particularly about Christ's return. Now, in the rest of the letter, you will see that some of the false teachers are arguing that Jesus isn't coming back, or maybe he's already come back, but we can't trust him to fulfill his promises. And Peter is saying, we saw the preview of his return. We saw his glory. He says, when we told you about his power and his coming, meaning when we taught about his return, when we taught about the promises of Jesus coming back for us in glory and in power, he says, we knew what we were talking about because we saw the preview. We saw the trailer. We saw that Jesus was already glorified before our eyes. So we believe that he's going to come in that way and be glorified and will come in power and will come supernaturally. He's saying, you can trust us based on our eyewitness account. That's the New Testament. Eyewitnesses recording what they saw, what they heard, checked by many other witnesses, corroborated by many other sources, and easily checked by people who read those accounts when they were written. There is a solid historical case to be made for the New Testament, and we need to trust it. So the Old Testament, something old, the prophetic witness, the New Testament, something new, the apostolic witness. And so Peter says in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, meaning these two things are now coming together and supporting each other. So what the prophets said, the apostles confirmed. What the apostles are saying, the prophets confirm. And so now this revelation about God, this Old Testament and New Testament, even as the New Testament is being written in Peter's day, even as he is writing it, carried along by the Holy Spirit, just like the prophets of old, all of this is speaking about a person. Now, this is important because Peter says, I am teaching about the power and coming of Jesus. My teaching is about Jesus, and it is confirmed by the prophets and confirmed by the eyewitness accounts of the apostles. I can take you back to that Ephesians 2.20 passage again. You see that clearly laid out there. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles, New Testament, and prophets, Old Testament. And then he adds, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What keeps the building together, the Old and the New Testament, what brings those two parts together is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. He's the focus. He's the center. So now we need to consider the person of Jesus Christ about whom both the Old and the New Testaments are written. Peter says that his teaching is about Jesus, and it is confirmed by both the Old 
and the New Testaments. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, and if you've read the New Testament, you know how it's brought together in the person and work of Jesus. The Messiah was promised in the Old Testament by the prophets, but he is witnessed in the New Testament by the apostles. And if you read both parts and compare both parts and connect both parts, you realize that this is one book, this is one revelation, and it's one revelation about one person. The Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield likened the Old Testament to a chamber richly furnished by dimly but dimly lighted. A chamber richly furnished by dimly but dimly lighted. Meaning that if you read just the Old Testament, you'll get a lot of hints. You'll get a lot of richness that is obscured. Revelations that are not full yet. Prophecies that are not fulfilled yet. Promises that are not met yet. But when you read the New Testament, the light shines. You turn the light on in the chamber that's richly furnished, and you see just how much of it fits with the new revelation about Jesus. Now think about the prophecies. I mean, it's amazing to see how specific some of these prophecies are. Now, there are many general prophecies, of course, but there are many very specific prophecies that came true in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Micah 5, verse 2, Micah is an Old Testament prophet. He predicts that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, very specifically. That's where Jesus was born. Zechariah 9, verse 9, another prophet, Old Testament prophet, foresees the Messiah entering Jerusalem on a donkey. Very specific, just as Jesus did. And people made the connection as it happened. Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13, predict that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Very specific, not 29, not 31, but 30 which is, of course, what happened as recorded in the Gospels. Psalm 22 describes in great detail the crucifixion of the Messiah, that the Messiah was going to be put to death in a particular way, even though the practice of the crucifixion was not known at the time. Now, for somebody who doesn't believe in supernatural things, who doesn't believe in God, the only solution is to say, well, maybe they were lucky, Maybe they guessed right, or maybe it was written later, after they knew, after Jesus was crucified. But if you believe that God speaks to us, there's nothing inconsistent about it. You just read it and you said, well, God knew, of course. And God told his prophets to tell us that this is how it was going to happen. Isaiah 53 is an incredibly descriptive passage of the Messiah's suffering and death. And if you know what happened on the cross, and if you know what led to the cross, and if you know how Jesus suffered and died, and you read Isaiah 53, you say, this is written about this event. Except that it was written hundreds and hundreds of years before the event. Now those are the prophecies. And that, frankly, would have been enough. But what about all the main themes Rich themes, the, the, these furnishings of the Old Testament. How they are developed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I mean, you think about things like steadfast love of the Lord. 
and how it finds its culmination and finds its development in the life of Jesus. The wrath of God against sin being satisfied on the cross. The family or people of God, how we are included and brought in through adoption. These are great things from the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in Christ in the New Testament. The holiness of God. The fact that we can't approach Him, and yet He calls us to Him. And when Jesus comes, we get it. Oh, He came close to us so we can see His glory, so we can be with Him. The kingdom of God. All those, those rich themes from the Old Testament, they all find their fulfillment in the new, in Jesus. Now think about all the promises of God that culminate in Jesus. All these things that God promised that when Jesus came, people said, this is the fulfillment. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Jesus. And that is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Because we see the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. Now think about all the types of Christ. This is a fascinating way to read Scripture is to see how God is setting up, creating institutions and offices and building buildings and, and creating patterns and laws and, principle, and principles and giving people into the history of Israel, all because He wants us to understand who Jesus is when He finally comes. When you read the book of Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews talks about the priesthood. How can he explain that Jesus is our priest without the history of the priesthood in the Old Testament? Why did God develop that whole institution of priesthood? For Jesus. So that when Jesus comes, we would say, ah, this is what he is like. He's like a priest. But we've known priests. And so we can understand what Jesus has come to do. It's an amazing to think that if this book is actually written by God, if it is God-breathed, and this is God's message, and this, these are His words, it's amazing to think how it all fits together and culminates in Jesus. It's no wonder that Jesus Himself rebuked His Jewish opponents in John 5, People who knew the Scriptures, who valued the Scriptures, but who missed the point of the Scriptures. Jesus says in John 5, 39 and 40, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is saying, it's not enough just to read the Bible and know what it says. If you don't see me in the Bible... You don't have life. If you hear God speak, but you don't connect the dots and you don't apply those words to me, Jesus says, you've missed it. You've missed the prophetic witness. You've missed the apostolic witness. And talking to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's saying, you missed it. You didn't see what the prophets were all about. Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is Luke 24. Jesus himself, the living word, is interpreting the written word for us and saying, this is all about me. And if you don't see me, you miss what it says. The Bible only matters if it leads you to the person of Jesus Christ. The person who lived a perfect life in your place, who died in sacrificial, propitiating death, I'll use a biblical word, propitiating death in your place, paying your penalty for sin, dying to satisfy the wrath of God for you. The person who rose again to make you right with God and give you eternal life. If you don't see that person in the Bible, you're not reading it right. The Bible exists, both the Old and the New Testament. They exist to introduce us to Him, to welcome us into a relationship with Him, and to guide us until He returns in power and in glory. And when He returns, He will judge the living and the dead, and He will welcome His people, those who are in relationship with Him, into His eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. That is what the Bible is about. I recently read a poem by Michael Geit. This poem is called Amen, or he's British, so it's Amen. And in that poem, he wrestles with the degrees of faith that we experience when it comes to accepting the Bible, accepting the Christian revelation, accepting the Christian teaching in all its different aspects. None of us truly and fully believes in everything the Bible says. And many of us struggle with various degrees of faith based on the day. And so Michael Guide is struggling with that too. He's struggling when, by asking, when will we ever say amen to everything in the Bible? When will that time be when we will finally agree with everything in perfect trust as the truth demands. And Guide concludes that our amen is ultimately not to the book as such, but to the person in that book. While we may wrestle with various parts of God's revelation, our main purpose, the direction of our faith, has to be towards Jesus, the person about whom the book is. So let me read his poem to you. Appropriately, it's a sonnet. When will I ever learn to say amen? Really assent at last to anything. For now my hesitations always bring some reservation in their trail, and then each reservation brings new hesitations. All my intended amens just collapse in an evasive mumble. Well, perhaps... Let me consider all the implications. But you can read my heart. I hear you say, For once be present to me. I am here. Breathe in the perfect love that casts out fear. Open your heart and let your yea be yea. Oh, bring me to that brink, that moment when I see your full-eyed love and say, Amen. We see him in the scriptures. 
We see his full-eyed love, and we say to him, to Jesus, Amen. I believe. I accept. I trust. Do you know him? Do you know the person about whom the Old Testament and the New Testament are written? About whom the prophets and the apostles testified? The eyewitnesses and the prophets of old? Do you know him? And lastly, let's consider what we are to do with all that we have just heard from Peter. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter says that based on all these proofs of authority, all this evidence that you can trust God's revelation, you can trust the prophetic message, you can trust the apostolic message, what do you do? You do well to pay attention to it. You do well to listen to God's Word. You use it as a lamp shining in a dark place. And you use it until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, until Jesus returns. This is all biblical language, by the way. These are biblical allusions. It's amazing that Peter, as he proves to us that the Bible is true, is using the language of the Bible and the images that the readers of the Old Testament are familiar with. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, you use the Bible as a lamp shining in a dark place to guide you. Now, since we have God's Word confirmed by the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, pay attention to the Bible. Now, let me give you very briefly four application points. One, pay attention to the whole Bible. Pay attention to the whole Bible. Notice that Peter is talking about the old and the new. And he's bringing them together. And he's saying both are important. The prophecies of the Old Testament are important. And the eyewitness accounts of the New Testament are important. The whole Bible is important and valuable to you. Now, if you're a new Bible reader, maybe you're intimidated. Maybe you're not sure how to start, how to read it. Maybe you're intimidated by the Old Testament. Maybe you tried to read the Old Testament and you got stuck on a genealogy or, or a list of laws or something that's difficult for you to understand. Well, please talk to someone else. Talk, find a more mature believer in the church and have them help you. And many of us would love to help you. It's great fun for us to open Scripture to a new believer and explain how these chapters and books fit together. Right now, today, we just finished a class which was an introduction to Bible reading, to how the Bible is put together, how to read it, how to understand it. Now, this is not the last time we're going to do it. We're going to regularly offer a Sunday school class introducing you to the Bible, helping you know how to read it, how to study it. There'll be lots more to come, but make use of those opportunities. I remember when I was a very young believer, and... We had a Bible study with me, and I think it was two or three other guys, all new believers, right? Nobody mature in, the, in that Bible study. 
And I remember we were talking about a particular issue. I don't remember what the issue was, but it was a question, what does the Bible say about this? We knew enough as young believers to know to turn to the Bible for answers, but none of us read the Bible. So it became very difficult as we were reading it and trying to understand it. And I remember somebody turning to me and saying, well, you read the New Testament at least. You tell us what the Bible says. There was, I had at least the New Testament, but I didn't hold the whole thing. I didn't have the whole revelation. I still was catching up. I was reading. And so we were limited in answering some pretty basic questions. So be with somebody who's read the whole thing. Find somebody that understands how this Bible is put together and what the Bible says, and learn from them. And if you are a person who has read the whole Bible and reading it all the time, find others that you can share your knowledge with and guide them in their study of the Scriptures. So that's number one. Pay attention to the whole Bible. Number two, be wholly shaped by the Bible. Be wholly shaped by the Bible. The whole person and the whole community of the church has to be shaped by the whole Bible. Now, notice in verse 19, Peter says, you do well to pay attention to, to the Bible as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So he's saying, until Jesus returns, that's what is meant by the day dawns and the morning star rises. Those are all images of his return. But then he adds, in your hearts. He's saying there will be an external manifestation of Jesus, and there will also be an internal manifestation of Jesus. When he comes, we will see him, we will experience his glory, he will set things right, we'll participate in that, but he will also set my heart right. He will fix whatever is lacking in my understanding of who he is. Until then, I'm trusting the Bible. But I, am, I want the Bible to do as much for me as it possibly can in every part of me, in every corner of my heart, externally, internally, personally, communally. I want the Bible to speak to that. The Bible must be the dominant voice for every believer. It's not the only voice. There are lots of other voices that are helpful, that need to be heard. But the Bible must be the dominant voice, the loudest voice, the most clearly heard, the most paid attention to voice. In theology, certainly. In politics, certainly. In sexuality, certainly. In worship, in ethics, in economics, yes, in economics too. In issues of justice, in relationships, in our careers and at work, in education and at school, when we're home, about entertainment, about leisure, whatever it is, the Bible has to be the dominant voice. Because the Bible is the only source that can report on things the way they really are. Everybody else is a pundit. Pundits could be helpful. I can be helpful to you as a pundit. But this is where the reporting happens. So you always go to the source and you submit your whole person and your whole community of the church to the authority of Scripture. As the Puritans said, the Bible is the light to our paths, the key of the kingdom of heaven, our comfort in affliction, our shield and sword against Satan, the school of all wisdom, the glass or the mirror wherein we behold God's face, the testimony of His favor 
and the only food and nourishment of our souls. Is that what the Bible is to you? Three, seek the whole Christ in the Bible. So the whole Bible, for the whole person, the whole community, and the whole Christ in the Bible. You read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, his personhood, his work, and you take all of his person, you take all of his work, and you search for it in the Scriptures. You read the Scriptures to meet and to know the Savior in all his richness. You don't compromise, you don't pick, you don't say, well, I really like to read about this part of Jesus. I really like to see Jesus as that kind of person. No. You see the whole Christ in the Scriptures. You see all His promises. Those that you are, are glad to receive and they're easy for you to trust and those that are hard for your heart to agree to, that you need to be patient and it's hard to be patient. You look at His suffering and His victory, both. You don't take one or the other. He's the suffering Savior and the victorious, glorious Savior. You look at all his teachings. You don't pick the teachings you like. You look at all of it. You look at all his appearances in the Old and in the New Testament, and you form a, a, an idea of who he is, what kind of person he is, what matters to him, what is he like. So you seek the whole Christ in the Bible. And finally, follow the Bible the whole way until the Lord returns. What I'm telling you today, what Peter is telling us in his letter, is important to us until the Lord returns. This is not going to lose its importance until he returns. So this is until he returns. You trust it. You trust this guide. You let scripture illuminate your life until the dawn breaks and the morning star rises in your hearts. I'll close with this really simple illustration. I, I, I like going on early morning walks. And depending on the time, time of year, you know, sometimes I walk out of the house and the sun is up and it's beautiful. And other times, which seems like most of the year, is I walk out and it's just dark. And I live on a dark street and we have a lamppost right in front of our house. It's on a manual timer. It's an old-timey thing where I have to go and, and figure out, you know, the, I have, the, there's knobs, you know, it's very steampunk in my house in the basement. And so I have to adjust it. And of course, you have to adjust it all the time because, you know, the dawn is not the same time every day as, as I figure it out. And so there were times when I would go out and it's just dark and my light is not on. And it could get a little tricky. So I would go back and I would recalibrate it. And I would adjust it, and I would say, okay, for this time, for maybe the next month, I need the light to, to, to be still on when I leave the house. And then, of course, very often when I come back from my walk, it's the dawn is breaking, and you have the light coming on, and my light in front of the house is already, is already switched off, and it's exactly the way it's supposed to be, because I don't need it anymore, because the dawn, dawn is broken. This is the image that Peter gives us here, until the sun rises, until Jesus returns, this is your guide. This is the light. Calibrate it in the way that it shines in your life. That it's not closed, that it's not inaccessible to you 
that it's not unusable in your life, but it actually works when it's supposed to work until the Lord comes back.